Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. If you're on the live stream, good morning to you as well, wherever you're watching us from. Welcome. I, I have the privilege this morning of bringing a conclusion to our Battle Within series that's been taking place in Romans uh, 6 through 8. And as I was thinking about where Paul brings us to in Romans chapter 6 through 8, uh, it just it kept bringing to mind this story that illustrates what I think will be a key principle this morning. Uh, when Lauren and I had just gotten married uh, for our honeymoon, we were traveling in South America, and because of some inclement weather, our, our travel plans changed, and we found ourselves having to book a hotel last minute. And so we're looking in Buenos Aires, Argentina, trying to find a hotel that was affordable. And, and here's one thing I discovered about hotels. Quite simply, they lie, right? And, and what I've discovered is that hotels are really good at hiring five-star photographers to take pictures of two-star hotels. And, and so we're trying to find a hotel. There's like a couple key criteria. One is affordability is key, and we want it to be in a relatively safe part uh, of town since we're in a foreign country, and so you know, we want to make sure it's, it's a safe place. And so we're looking, like spent hours on Travelocity and Orbitz trying to find a good hotel. And finally, we find this one that's substantially cheaper than all the rest, right? And we think... This is, this is a great deal. We have to book this. Um, but you know this principle that's true, and the principle is, if it's too good to be true, it probably is, right? And so we book this hotel, and we get there, and right away when you walk in, it's like, huh, everything looks way older than the pictures and way more worn than the pictures. And so we, we check in, we get to our room, we go explore the city a little bit, and we come back to our room and I open the door to the bathroom and there's these bugs like all over the bathroom floor, right? And my wife looks at it and goes, nope, not going to happen, right? So I go down to the front desk and I'm, I'm trying to be super polite. I'm like, you know, ma'am, there's, I don't know what they are, some kind of bugs all over our bathroom. She goes, oh yeah, okay, no problem. Reaches under the desk and pulls out a can of Raid. <laughs> like, oh yeah, let me, let me just go exterminate the bugs in my own bathroom, right? Like didn't offer to change rooms, none of that. And, and so I turned around and the guy behind me in line waiting to check in sees the bug spray and he goes, oh, that's not good, right? And I was like, I was like buddy, there's still time to change your reservation, right? But, but I learned the hard way that if something's too good to be true, it probably is. So I, I want to drive this point home. So I have a couple examples of this. So take a look at the screen, right? Look at, look at that hotel pool, right? You can see the skyline. You can see those, those skyscrapers. I mean, it looks beautiful, right? But here's what this actual pool is right? <laughs> I mean, the water's even, the water's much more green than the picture on the left. I, I wouldn't get in there if I were you, right? Or, or maybe you think, oh, I'd love to book an all-inclusive beach resort vacation like this one in Rio de Janeiro. Look at that. Like the water is just blue and look at all that sand. I mean, it just looks relaxing. But here's the reality of when you book that trip, Right? <laughs> It will be you and a few million of your closest uh, friends spending time shoulder to shoulder on the beach, right? Or, or, or let's say, let's say you, you want to buy your, your daughter, a niece, nephew, granddaughter, they want an Elsa cake for their birthday. Now, if you've ever, ever bought a, a custom cake, they're expensive unless you find the baker who's willing to cut you a good deal and make you an Elsa cake like this, right? <laughs> I mean, looks just like the Disney animation, doesn't it? Or, or maybe if you've bought something on eBay, 
right? And, and you look and you find this great deal. Maybe, maybe your kids love Winnie the Pooh and you find this just great deal on this Winnie the Pooh stuffed pillow. <laughs> you should probably get it, right? And, and what this illustrates is, is what we just talked about. If something's too good to be true, it probably is. Now, the challenge with this is because we're used to being marketed to all the time, right? We always have people telling us about this great deal. You have to get in on it now. I, I feel like we often live with a sense of skepticism because we know that if it's too good to be true, more than likely it is. And, and so Paul brings us to this place in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where he says, in summary of Romans actually chapter 5 through 8, Paul goes, what then do we say in response to this good news? And at the end of chapter 8, there's this moment where Paul says the abundant truth of what we have just encountered in his letter, he says, is so good. And my concern for us this morning is when we see the good news of the gospel that Paul has been telling us, my concern for us is that we have looked at what Paul's told us and part of us are skeptical. We're looking at Paul's letter and we're going, okay, Paul, we see what you're saying, but it can't possibly be that good. Paul, this good news that you're talking about, it must be too good to be true. And so I think there's a part of us maybe that's skeptical about the good news of what Paul has been telling us about the gospel. Because if, if you remember in chapter six, Paul talked about this reality that we are dead in sin, right? And he talks about our spiritual journey. Chapter six, he says, we're dead to sin. He says, but the beautiful truth is that we can be made alive in Jesus Christ, and then in Romans chapter 7, Paul talks about how we're not under the law. He talks about how the law is a description of why, what right living looks like, but the law cannot actually empower us to live rightly. So when Paul gets to Romans chapter 8, he says, here's this beautiful truth, is that the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to live a sanctified life as children of God. And Pastor Steve spent the last two or three weeks talking about this beautiful reality that the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, that the Spirit of God is empowering you for this life that he's called us to, and that our identity is changed, that you are a son, you are a daughter of God Most High. And so Steve brought us to this place last week in Romans chapter 8. In verse 28 to 29, he read this. He says, for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He says, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified, right? And so Paul gets to doing some theology. So what I thought I might do is, is just map this out for us, because I think what Paul is talking about here is our salvation journey, right? And there's this reality, Romans 6, we were dead to sin. Elsewhere in Romans, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. When we choose to live in a sinful disposition, turning our backs on God, living on our own plan, our own purpose, our own direction, that ultimately leads to a place of spiritual death where we're separated from God. But what Paul tells us then in Romans 8 is he says, God is, has called us to be in relationship with himself. And so what we recognize is that even while we're still living in sin, that grace is at work that God is empowering us. God is in his spirit calling to us, saying, you are called to be in relationship with me. And the spirit of God in God's grace is at work in our life and he begins to convict us of sin. And as a pastor, I've had so many moments 
where I sit down with somebody over coffee or I'm waiting in an airport and someone asks, what do you do? And when I tell them I'm a pastor, they either get really awkward and apologize for choice language they used or they open up their life and they start to say things like, you know, I know that the path that I'm on isn't good. I know I really need to think about my spirituality and my faith. And when they say, I know that the path that I'm on isn't good, what they're saying is there's this conviction. There's something in the internal depths of my life bearing witness to the reality that the trajectory of my life is wrong. And that's conviction. That's the Holy Spirit of God calling his people back to him. Now, repentance is this moment where we acknowledge in the power of God's grace, in the power of the spirit that's at work within us, we come before Jesus and we say, Jesus, I recognize that the life that I've been living is not what you've called me to. I'm sorry for the rebellion against you that I've lived in. And repentance is a reorientation of our life back to Jesus. It's answering this call of the spirit to be in relationship with the God of all the universe. And then what does Paul say in Romans 8, 29? He says, those whom God calls, he justifies. Now, justification in, in scripture, it carries with it this sort of a legal metaphor. And the reality is, is what Paul tells elsewhere in the New Testament. He says, Jesus took the written code that was against us and stood opposed to us, right? Sin creates a list of debts. It's a list of all the laws of righteous living that we have violated, but when Jesus justifies us, right, he takes all of those things that we've done wrong and he declares that we have been forgiven because we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place, that he died the death that was meant for us. And so we can be justified. We can be made right but with God, that all of those things can be forgiven. And what I want to suggest to you is often when we talk about salvation, what it is to be saved and have relationship, we often stop right here. We talk about this reality that we've repented and that Jesus has forgiven us. But Paul says the good news doesn't stop here. Did you notice what he says? He says, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of God. And what Paul says is not just that we're justified. It's not just that God looks at all the wrong we've done and declares that we're forgiven. No, he gives us new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it this way. He says, if anyone is in Christ, you're a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And it's not just that we're forgiven, but it's that we're freed for a new life in Jesus. And so when we talk about sanctification, a word that Paul has used multiple times in Romans 6, 7, and 8, sanctification is this idea that in the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, we come before God and we say, Jesus, I don't want you to just be the savior of my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Everything that I am, all that I have, I am entirely yours and I lay it down at your feet. And the beauty of a sanctified life, when it's sanctified, it's set apart. You say, I'm setting apart my life for service to Jesus. And the beauty of sanctification is that sin is no longer the dominant force in your life. Now, this doesn't mean you're not still going to deal with temptation. This doesn't mean there's not going to be trial. There will be. But the beauty of what Paul also says in Romans 8, right? You tracking with me still? He says, those whom God called, he justifies. Catch this. And those whom God justifies, he glorifies. Now, glorification is this moment when Jesus returns. 
And he calls all of the believers to enter the life to come and to live in eternity in relationship with God himself. And when Jesus returns to finally and fully redeem all things, Jesus will finally and fully redeem us. Our sin will be done away with, will be healed, will be whole, will be restored. And to live life in glory with Jesus is to be finally and fully redeemed. And the struggles that we face and the temptation that we face will be no more. Because the good news is even better than we suspected. It's not just that we've been forgiven. Listen, church, if all Jesus did was forgive us, there's no freedom in that. I don't want to be forgiven if I'm doomed to live my old life. But Paul says the beauty of the gospel is this. You have been forgiven and you have been set free and you are made new. And my concern with that is we look at it and we go, Paul, there's no way it can't be that good. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. And so Paul gets to this place in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, where he says this. Let me read this for you. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who saved us or who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We can just go home now. That is good news, church. And here's the core truth that I want us to wrestle with this morning. If you take nothing else away from the message, take this. The core truth is that God is for us. That God is fundamentally for you. That he is working in your life for your flourishing. He is working in your life for your well-being. Now, this doesn't mean that we're going to have a trouble-free life, right? Pastor Steve talked about that a couple weeks ago. This doesn't mean that there's never going to be trials or circumstances. But what this does mean is that in Jesus, nothing is ever wasted. Nothing is ever meaningless. It means that we live a life where all things are able to be redeemed. Because we fundamentally believe that even in difficult things, God is for us and working on our behalf. Church, I I want that truth to sink in this morning. That the God of all creation is fundamentally for you. So here's what I want us to do in the next two minutes. Take a deep breath. I want us to reflect on Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40 is this moment when the prophet describes the beauty and the grandeur of the God that we serve. So watch this video. It's a read-through of parts of Isaiah 40. As you watch this video, here's what I want you to keep in mind. The God who's described in Isaiah 40 is fundamentally for me. Take a look at this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket 
or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance, who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chafe. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens, who created all of these. He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. I love that description of, of the greatness of our God. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Have you, have you ever been to the ocean and stood on the shoreline and watched just the fury of the waves as they crash on the beach? The ocean is this expansive, wild, untamed thing. And yet the prophet Isaiah says, the God of all creation holds the very depth and power of the sea in the palm of his hand. He says, the nations are like a drop in the bucket to him. Our God is able to uproot and tear down nations and powers and princes. He weighs the islands as if they're but tiny specks of dust. Our God is greater and more majestic and more powerful than we can even begin to comprehend. And in Romans 8.31, Paul says, what then do we say in response to this? God is for us. I love this truth that the God of all creation is working for our well-being and flourishing in our life. And it's demonstrated in this very process that when we were dead and sin, the very God of all creation provided the way for us to be brought back into relationship with him. This is the demonstration ultimately of God's greatness and goodness and graciousness. And, and I think for some of us, we say, okay, I hear this, this word that Paul is, is or that God is for us but it feels too good to be true. And for some of us, we wrestle to believe this. And I think there's at least four reasons that we wrestle with this. For some of us, as we have encountered difficult circumstances and trials, when we encounter those things, we go, how can God be for me if I'm encountering difficult things? And what we do is we interpret difficult circumstances as the absence of God's presence and provision and protection and power. And we say, God can't be for me. Why is he allowing difficult things? And part of what I want us to recognize this morning is that God doesn't call us to an easy life. God calls us to a whole and redeemed life. And sometimes wholeness and holiness and redemption require a season of formation through difficult things. We'll come back to that. 
For others of us, we wrestle to believe that God is for us because we have things in our life that have not turned out as we hoped. Maybe you prayed for someone to be healed. Maybe you prayed for children. Maybe you prayed for provision in a moment where finances were tight. Maybe you prayed for someone to come to know Christ and they've never responded and God hasn't answered that prayer. And because it hasn't turned out like we hoped, we say, what do you mean that God is for me? How can he be for me if he won't respond to the things that I've been praying for? For others of us, we have wrong perceptions of God. Maybe you have a relationship with your earthly father that's difficult. Maybe your earthly father is an angry person or someone that's difficult to please or someone that has high expectations that you can never live up to. And what we do is we take these uh, thoughts about our earthly father and we project them back onto God. And we imagine God as someone who's angry and difficult to please, a God with high expectations that we can never live up to. And we look at it and we say, there's no way that that God is for me. For others of us, we've had people that have let us down. There are people that you trusted, people that should have had your back. Maybe it was a spouse who was unfaithful. Maybe it was a parent who left your life early on. Maybe it was a friend that you trusted implicitly and they took something that you trusted with them and they shared it with other people. And people who should have had your back, people who should have been your advocates have let you down. And there's this hurt and there's this woundedness and there's this brokenness and there's this lie that enters that brokenness that says no one can be trusted. No one is for you. You fight for yourself. And we look at this truth that Paul has given us, that God is for us, and we say, there's no way. Maybe God's for other people, but there's no way that God is for me. And I think what Paul does is in the rest of 831 to 39, is Paul goes, let let me prove to you that God is for you. And I think he offers four, I think, pretty convincing proofs that God is for us. The first is this, Paul affirms in verse 32 that God gave his son Jesus for us. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He, God, who gave, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And Paul goes, you want proof that God is for you? He sent his son Jesus to die for us, right? The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And the reason we have that free gift of life offered is because that Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. And what I love about this, to be for someone, to be someone's advocate does not mean that I stand on the sidelines and cheer them on. To be for someone, to be someone's advocate means I enter their mess with them. I get in the stuff of life shoulder to shoulder and I say, let's do this together because I'm for you. And I love that when God sees us in our broken plight, when we were powerless over sin, Jesus entered a broken, sin-sick world and took that sin on himself, being nailed to a cross, paying the penalty for our sin that we might have life. I, I love the way Paul describes this in Romans 5, 6. He says, you see at just the right time, When we were still powerless to sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But catch this, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. There's nothing good in us when we're living in sin, rejecting God while we were still sinners. Jesus died for us even then. Even when we've rejected God, he's still fundamentally for us. 
And Paul goes, you want proof that God is for you? Jesus gave his life. Paul continues, verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Catch this. How will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us all things? You want proof that God is for you. Paul says, God gave his son for us. And secondly, God will graciously provide all things that we need for this journey of salvation. I love the way Philippians chapter one, verse six says it. There Paul says this. He says, we are confident of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. And I love what Paul says is God starts this work. It all begins with his grace and the power of his spirit through the death of his son, Jesus on the cross for us. And Paul says, I'm confident that God who started this work will carry it on to completion, that God will graciously give us everything we need through his empowering of the spirit to experience freedom and new life because God is fundamentally for us. Third, I think the proof that Paul gives us that God is fundamentally for us. God gave his son on the cross for us. He graciously gives us all things, empowering us to experience this life. And third, God does not give us what we deserve. I love how Paul says this in verses 33 and 34. He says, who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? In other words, who's going to condemn God's people? He says, no one. He says, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And he says, God doesn't give us what we deserve. Who condemns us? No one. He says, rather, God has justified us. God has forgiven us when we deserve death. We deserve to be separated from him because of our rebellion. And Paul says, listen, when you've responded to the call of God in your life and accepted his grace and invited in the presence and power of the spirit, he says, no one condemns you. He says, Jesus, who's sitting at the right hand of God, And to sit at God's right hand is a position of power and of authority. And in that position of power and authority, Jesus is the only person who can rightly condemn us. And Paul says this, he says, who condemns you? He says, no one. That when we deserve to be separated from God because of our sin and rebellion, rather than condemning us, God justifies us and makes us right for giving everything that we've done wrong. And then I love how Paul continues. This is the fourth proof that God is for you. He gave us his son. He graciously gives us all things uh, to experience this new life. He's justified us, not giving us what we've deserved. And finally, there's this. Jesus intercedes for us. Notice again what Paul said in verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. Catch this. More than that, was raised to life. Jesus conquered death. Catch this. He's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. To intercede for us means that Jesus goes before us and is advocating on our behalf. Now, this is the second time that Paul has talked about intercession, about interceding in this chapter. The first time is in verse 26. He says this. He says, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now Paul is telling us in verse 34 that that Jesus is also interceding for us. Now, here's the picture that is not correct. It is not that God the Father is angry and the Son and the Spirit are begging God the Father to forgive us. It's not that, right? 831 says that God is for us. The beauty and the mystery of what Paul is saying here 
is that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from eternity to eternity, the holy triune God is having a conversation about what is best for you and for your life and how they can advocate for us. Church, that is mind-blowing to me that the God of all creation who holds the nations and the oceans in his hand, who tears down political powers and structures because he is more majestic and powerful than that, the God of all creation is in a conversation with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit about advocating for us. There's this moment in Luke, Luke chapter 22, where Peter and Jesus are having a conversation and in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, um, Jesus tells Peter, he says, Peter, Satan, the accuser, has asked to sift you like wheat. And what he means is that Satan wants to test Peter's faith. And Jesus says this in verse 32 of Luke 22. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. And what I like to picture is the God of all creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying, we are right now having a conversation about how we can work on your behalf so that when you encounter difficult things, as you walk through this life, that your faith would hold strong. Think about that, that you matter enough to God that he is spending time in conversation on your behalf. So, so what is the implication of this for us? What, what does this mean for us tangibly? How does this impact how we live? I want to leave you with three things here. Number one, we don't live in condemnation, right? God has forgiven us. And I think, church, we need to step fully and freely into our new identity, that we are no longer who we used to be, that when we've been justified and made right, we are given a new life. I think of elsewhere in the New Testament where Paul says, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. He says, I fix my eyes on the prize toward which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And church, for some of us, we're still rooted in our past and we daily remind ourselves of the mistakes and of the sins and of the things that we've done wrong. Church, it's time to leave a forgiven past behind. Accept that you've forgiven and you are no longer who you used to be when Jesus transforms and redeems you. If Jesus doesn't condemn us, for some of us, we need to stop living in self-condemnation of ourselves. And trust the good news of this word that God is for us, he's justified us, and he's transforming us. The second implication of this for us is that God's love for us is steadfast. Did you notice how Paul says this starting in verse 35? He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? He says, trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, none of those things can separate us. In verse 38, he says, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor their future, nor any powers, height, depth, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Church, think about that. There is literally nothing on heaven above or earth below, nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And for some of us, we feel like when we mess up, when we make a mistake, that God is somehow disappointed. We think that God's love for us is dependent on our ability to perform well. But church, listen, you are not more powerful than God. If neither height nor depth, neither angels nor demons, if suffering and famine and nakedness, if those things cannot separate you from the love of God, you cannot separate you from the love of God. 
You can run as far and as fast away from God as you want, but he cannot stop loving you because it's the essence of who he is. Finally, what this means for us, we are more than conquerors. I love how Paul says this. He says in verse 37, no, in all these things, in all the trials and struggles and persecutions, he says in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Meaning that difficult seasons are not just places of survival. It's not just getting through. It's not just biding our time. He says, no, when you encounter difficult things, it's not just that you conquer it. No, you are more than conquerors in those difficult moments because God's love for you and his grace is empowering a transformative work in us. So in Romans 5, Paul says something like this. He says, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to to us. And Paul says that even in the middle of difficult things, God is forming and shaping and transforming who we are. So we're more than conquerors. We don't just come out the other side having survived difficult things, but in the midst of difficult things, God is forming our character And he's pouring his love into our lives by the power of the Spirit, as Paul says. I pray today that you hold to that fundamental truth that God is for you. I want to leave us with three three things this morning. I want to reflect on this question. What aspect of your past are you holding on to as part of your identity that you need to let go of? You recognize Jesus' invitation into new life, but part of you is hanging on to who you used to be. And you're letting that form and shape your identity. And this morning, God is saying, you need to let go of that and step fully into my forgiveness and the freedom that I bring. For, other of us, for others of us, I want us to wrestle with this question. Is there a part of your life that you need to consecrate? To consecrate something is to give it fully and completely for worship to God. Is there a part of your life that you need to surrender fully to Jesus? that you've said, Jesus, I want you to be the savior of my life, but I want to hold on to my career. I want to hold on to my marriage. I want to hold on to my finances. I want to hold on to my kids. I want to hold on to my material possessions. And God's saying, no, no, I I want new life for you. Surrender all of those things to me. And it doesn't mean that you give them up. It means that every part of your life, Jesus has control over. Because a sanctified life is a life that is entirely, wholly, completely set apart for worship to him. And finally, I pray this week that you spend time in Isaiah chapter 40, meditating on this description of God's power and God's glory. And I pray that you would spend time in Romans 8, 31 to 39, reflecting on the beautiful truth that God is for you and that you are more than conquerors.